Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Mark chapter 13, 1 John 4, Matthew chapter 6. Let's go to the Lord in prayer to prepare our hearts. Father, we are truly thankful for eternal life. And we're grateful, Lord, that in this world, you have given us the tools and equipped us with your word to prepare us for what's ahead of us. We're thankful that you're the God that knows all. And you didn't hide it. You ministered to us. (coughs) And so, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that your word would speak to us in power this this afternoon. And that you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. If you remember, it's been a long day of ministry for Jesus. He has been in the temple all day long. Mark chapter 12, we recognize that we're in the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, Mark's gospel, is half of it deals with just the last week of the life of Jesus. And this week began, you remember, with him turning up the tables. So the Pharisees, they wanted to know, by what authority do you do these things? And so Jesus has been at the temple all day, and they've been pummeling him with question after question, trying to figure out, who do you think you are? Now, he's headed out of Jerusalem. He's headed out off the temple. And his disciples, well, they've come up with a couple of questions for him as well. Take a look, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. They're taking a look at the construction project at the temple. And this project's been going on for 50 years from this point. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Stop there if you would. The disciples are amazed at how Jesus has silenced his enemy. I mean, they are walking out of the temple with their heads high. They're walking with their MVP of the Super Bowl of faith. Jesus has answered all of their questions with such wisdom and discernment. He has silenced them. And these guys, they're out walking out of the temple. They're like living the dream. They're on the championship team. They've got the ring on their finger. They're in the heights of ministry. And they're just taking a look at this incredible temple construction that Herod started 50 years prior. Unfortunately, the disciples, they have no concept of what's about to happen at the end of this week. Jesus is going to a cross. And they're thinking that they're about to take over this incredible building, the temple. And as they're walking out, they take some time to take note of the beauty of their future office space there in the temple. 
Jesus, when he looks at them, he says, do you see these great buildings? In other words, he's saying these buildings are absolutely magnificent. In fact, the temple was one of the wonders of the world that people from all over the world would come just to see Herod's temple. As I said, Herod started this temple about 50 years before this moment. So Herod wouldn't live to see the completion of this temple because the temple has another 30 years before it's finished. That's how magnificent this place was. Now, The reason why Herod wanted to make such a magnificent place, he wasn't the true king of the Jews. He bought into it. He wooed Caesar. And because he was loyal to Caesar, Caesar made him king. But the religious Jews needed some coaxing. So he decided, I'm going to build you this incredibly magnificent temple. But the real reason he wanted to build it was a monument to his leadership. He wanted people to see how incredible he was. And it was incredible. Oh, take a look at the screen. In fact, as you were coming up the southern steps, you would come into a covered walkway known as a portico. They didn't build their sidewalks just out so the sun could beat you. No, they put beautiful tops on all their sidewalks. And as you were coming in, you could see the temple in all of its glory. In fact, if you take a look at this next picture, you get a better visual of what that portico would have looked like. Oh, this is where Jesus would turn the tables up because this is where they were selling all of their wares in that particular area. But then you would walk from there towards the temple and you would go into the court of women. You'll see the picture here. Oh, it was magnificent. The temple was made of marble to make its stature look bigger than what it actually was. Herod had covered the whole temple round about with gold, so much, so much gold, that when the sun hit it, it actually hurt your eyes to look at it. In fact, if you take a look at this next picture, you'll see exactly what Herod did. Herod, he took Mount Moriah. He built a retaining wall around the mountain, filled it in with dirt, and made a 35-acre platform to put the temple right there in the middle. In fact, many Jewish theologians of the time said, whoever has not seen Herod's temple has not seen beauty. It was beautiful. Surrounded by gold, made of marble. Its size was absolutely magnificent. Take a look at Mark chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus goes on to say, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Do you remember at the beginning of this week, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem? And in Luke's gospel, chapter 19, he says this as he's coming in. Luke 19, verse 41, the Bible says, Now as he drew near, he's coming towards Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, my own people, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, I'm the king of peace, I'm the king of kings. And he says, But now they are hidden from your eyes. And then he says, For days will come upon you when your enemies, speaking of the Romans, will build an embankment around you, surround you, 
close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave you in, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Jesus said this 40 years before the Romans did exactly what Jesus said they would do. You see, in 66 AD, the Jews decided to revolt against Roman rule. And over the course of about three and a half years, the Jews had some victories over the Romans. However, finally in 70 AD, Titus was fed up with the Jews and he came back to Jerusalem with a vengeance. And he did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He surrounded Jerusalem with an embankment. He leveled Jerusalem to the ground. The only remaining place was the temple. And all of the religious Jews ran to the temple and they locked themselves inside the temple. Well, when the Romans finally breached the temple walls and got into the temple, they were so fed up with the Jewish rebellion that when they got in, they burned the temple down to the ground. Titus saw the temple burning. The very next day, he made his soldiers pry apart the stones because when they burned the temple, the gold in the temple and the gold around the temple melted and it melted into the stones of the temple. It melted into the sidewalks of the temple. So what Titus did, he told his Roman soldiers to take down the temple stone by stone so that they could take the gold out in between the stone. And what Jesus said 40 years prior was fulfilled by Titus, not one stone was left upon the other when they dug out the gold from in between those stones. Jesus said it would happen. And this is so important because Jesus is just about to tell us what it's going to look like in regards to his second coming. And if what Jesus said about Jerusalem happened, we can trust that what Jesus says about his second coming is also going to happen. And if Jesus said something literally, and it literally happened, then we can assume that literally Jesus is coming again for his church. Amen? Amen. But there's something else to see in this. When the disciples were looking at the temple, they were amazed by the beauty of the temple. They were just in awe of the beauty of the temple. But Jesus, when he looked at the temple, he saw something totally different. You see, they saw the beauty of the temple, but he saw it completely destroyed. How often does this happen in our lives? How often does it happen that we see something so beautiful, but Jesus warns us and tells us, "Uh uh-uh, that thing will destroy you. It's just bait on a hook. Like you see that girl and she's so beautiful, but she's not saved. And Jesus says, don't date her. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't go that direction. But she's so beautiful. Jesus goes, no, no, no. She's ugly, I'm telling you. You don't want to date her. She doesn't know the Lord. She's going to hurt you. I'm telling you, but she's so beautiful. Look at her. How many times that happened in her life? Or maybe, maybe you've been sitting in the ashes of your life 
and Jesus found you, and he says, I think you're beautiful. I am so thankful that in the ashes of Chet Lowe's life, he decided to look upon me and say, I know where you're at, but I know where I'm taking you. I think you're beautiful, Chet Lowe. And how many times has he done that for you? Where you have been in the ashes of your life and you think there's no recovery from it, but Jesus takes you from those ashes and he makes all things beautiful. Can I tell you that Jesus sees things differently than we do? That's why the wisest man in the world told us in Proverbs chapter 3, he said this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. When Jesus calls it beautiful, call it beautiful. When he calls it ugly, call it ugly. But if you think it's beautiful, still call it ugly. I'm telling you, don't lean on your own understanding. Trust the way that God sees it. Mark chapter 13, verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, his buddies, they asked him privately two questions. Tell us when these things will be. They figured Jesus answered all their questions that day. They They can ask too. Tell us when these things will be. And then he asked the second question. What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now Jesus, he's left the temple. He's sitting on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley on the 2,700-foot Mount of Olives looking down at Temple Mount. Now if you go to Israel with us, you can sit right where Jesus was sitting. This is a picture taken from Mount of Olives looking at Temple Mount. Do you see that wall that surrounds all those trees? That's the actual wall that Jesus would have been looking at. That's Herod's wall. And if you go to Israel today, you will be able to see that wall. And Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at that wall. And the guys come up and they ask him a question. Now, they were smart. They don't ask Jesus about the destruction of the temple while they're at the temple. They wait till they're at the Mount of Olives. There's a reason for that. You don't want to talk and joke about explosives in your carry-on when you're going through TSA security. Let me tell you. Do you remember Trevor Davis? Green Bay Packers wide receiver in 2018. He looked over his girlfriend and he said, Hey, did you remember to pack the explosives as a joke? He got arrested, mugshot and all, over a joke. You see, you don't joke, you don't ask questions about the destruction of the temple while you're at the temple. So they came to Jesus when he sat down, and he's looking at the Mount of Olives. This is important. Jesus knows they have questions. He knows they don't understand what he said. So he's created a moment looking at the temple He sits down, and they come over to ask him. Now, this is important for us, because whenever we're struggling with something that Jesus has told us, go to him. Like, if you're mad at me right now that I said, don't date an unbeliever, (laughs) don't be mad at me. Go to Jesus. 
He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. You can ask him any question you want. It doesn't come from me. It comes from him. So don't be upset with me. Go to Jesus in the secret place where he's waiting for you. And I guarantee if you don't understand what he's communicated, he'll encourage you. He'll walk with you. He'll help you press on. He'll bring you to understanding. He'll answer your questions. You see, the disciples got a couple of questions. You see, in Zechariah chapter 14, I encourage you to read it. In Zechariah chapter 14, when Jerusalem is destroyed, the Messiah is going to come. That's what they understood. What they didn't understand was when. Because Zechariah says, it seems like as soon as it's destroyed, then the Messiah will come. What Zechariah doesn't tell us is 2,000 years of church history, the end of the age, the age that we're living in now. So what Jesus does, he's going to answer their question. But he's going to answer it in a way to tell them how to be ready and get ready for the second coming. He's going to encourage them to do Three things, and these three things are an encouragement to us because I don't know if you know this. We're living in the end of the age. We are living in the last days. In fact, when Mark wrote this gospel, this is the longest sermon that Mark records. And many theologians believe that Mark was leading to this point to show the church what they need to live by in the last days because we're in it. Take a look, Mark chapter 13. Let's dig in, discover these three things. Take a look at the first. Mark chapter 13, verse 5. Take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 6. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Stop there if you would. People are going to come in the last days and try and deceive the church with false teaching. And what Jesus is encouraging them to do, listen carefully, maybe you'll write it down, know the word. Know the word. Know it inside and know it outside. Because the tactic of the enemy since the very beginning has been to attack the word of God. Look at this at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing the church and he says this, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The Corinthians were believing something that wasn't true. And Paul's saying, look, I gave you to the word of God. I didn't give you to any other kind of deceitful teaching. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. No wonder, he says, Satan himself transforms. He's a deceiver. He transforms himself into an angel of light. Now, just imagine the moment. Eve is there in the garden. Now, I know some of us are going, Eve, what in the world were you doing talking to a snake? Talking to the animals was not a big deal. Do you remember that Adam was naming the animals? Back then, an elephant could say, hey, I'd like to be called an elephant. I've got a long, you know, this is pretty cool, Adam. What do you think? Adam couldn't find anyone that was comparable with him. When Adam was naming the whales, the whales went, hey, Adam, how are you doing? 
But then all of a sudden, sin hits, and now all the whales can do is this. They can't get it out. My dog looks at me all the time, wondering, why can't you just understand what I'm trying to get across to you? Do you remember when Balaam's donkey spoke to him? God rolled back the impact of sin because animals used to speak to us. Sin stopped it. Sin caused the enmity. Sin has a degrading effect. So when the snake shows up to Eve, it was normal to talk to the snake. And the snake was filled with Satan and said to him, said to her, did God really say? I want to make you question the word of God. And what it does is he shows up as an angel of light. He doesn't show up in red pajamas with malvescent horns and a pitchfork. He shows up in a suit, slicked back hair, and good looking. Let me tell you something. He is a deceiver. It's who he is. When he showed up to Jesus, well, that's what he does as a deceiver. He took a little bit of the word of God and he inserted a little bit of deception. But when Jesus fought the enemy there in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, Jesus said to him, it is written. He fought him with the word of God. The enemy is a deceiver. The devil is a deceiver. He wants to deceive us. Take a look at what Roman, uh, Revelation says about the devil. Listen, the great dragon was cast out. God had had enough of the devil. He was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, not some of the world, the whole world, not believers, he deceives the world, was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. He's a deceiver. Let me give an example. How many of us believe God is love? Go ahead, raise your hand. You believe God is love. Great. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. Now let me tell you what the deceiver does. The deceiver preaches a doctrine in the 21st century. Since God is love, you can live whatever lifestyle you want because he loves you so much. Do you hear the deception? It's true, God is love. But then he offers a bit of deception to tantalize your feelings and your sinful state that you can be whatever you want to be because God is love. He takes the truth and twists it and deceives us. We've got to know the word. And let me tell you what the word says. John chapter 14, verse 15. The Bible says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Love exists in parameters. I love my wife. I love her so much, we went on a little trip. Her and I, we haven't been away together in three years. So we went away and had a little trip together. And we came to the airport where we were about to take off and come home. And I don't know if the air wasn't working, but I said, man, it's hot. I'm hot. And she looked at me and she said, you sure are. We had a great few days. It was great. <laughs> it was great. You look like... 
we had a great few days, okay? Now, just imagine in that moment, I say to my wife, hey, I'm not going to see you for the next three to five years. We've had a great few days. It's enough for us for the next three to five years. My wife would look at me and go, you ain't so hot. (laughs) I love my wife. And because I love my wife, part of love is that you spend time. It's one of the parameters. If you're married, you spend time with your wife. That's what you do. You spend time with your wife. If you love your wife. If I don't spend time with my wife, then what I'm telling her is, I don't love you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to communicate. I don't want to talk. If I can take three to five years where I just say nothing to you, and once every three to five years, we don't have a relationship. But because I love her, one of the parameters of love is that I spend time with her. God is love. And he gives us the way to love him. And one of the ways is that we do life his way, not our way. It's a parameter of love. But the world will will twist it. That's just what the world does. In fact, turn with me to 1 John. John warns us of this in 1 John chapter 4. Turn there with me if you would. 1 John chapter 4, take a look at verse 1. 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 1. Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. He's speaking about living in the last days. He says this, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John chapter 4, now verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Jehovah's Witness don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Look what he says about that. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh Uh-oh. Which you have heard was coming, so Jesus told you, and is now already in the world. People are already teaching us false things. And if we don't know the word, look what he says in verse uh, 4. You're of God, little children. He gives them some confidence and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You've got the word of God in you that they are, they are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. He says, we're of God. He who knows God hears us. In other words, you listen to the word of God. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth, people that follow the word of God, and the spirit of error, people that don't. You see, what he's saying is the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world teaching false doctrine. You've got to know the word so that when the enemy comes, you respond with, it is written. Amen? He goes on with his second encouragement. Go with me back to Mark's gospel, chapter 13, verse 7. He says... Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. Whoa! Jesus warned, in this last days, there are going to be tribulations. There are going to be trials. 
There are going to be troubles. You are going to walk through things in life. How many of you have had trials and tribulations in your life? And you would say, yes, this is true. There are wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be troubles. He says, this must happen. Take a look. He's already told us before. It's John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, look at his will, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let the church say, amen. 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 You see, John tells us what Mark confirms. There are going to be trials and tribulations, and they must happen. And I want to tell you why. The devil is the ruler of this world. And Jesus is letting us know the result of his reign. Wherever the devil's involved, there's going to be trials and tribulations. Because the devil has three goals, according to John chapter 10, verse 10. To kill, steal, and John 10, 10. The devil's goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. And what he uses is sin, sin in the world. He tempts us with sin. It's like a power that he wants to hold on to the world with. And let me tell you something about sin. Sin doesn't remain stagnant. It grows. It has a greater and greater effect. In fact, even in our own lives, James, the brother of Jesus, he would say this, sin, if we allow any temptation, sin when it's full grown, bring forth death. In other words, if you think looking at that pornographic picture, you'll never look at another one again. Trust me, two or three days from now, the next picture is going to come. And then the next picture. And it won't be two or three days, it'll be two or three hours. Because sin grows. It's just what sin does. And its goal is to bring to destruction. Sin grows. Why do you think we're not living 900, 800, 700 years like they used to in the beginning of time? Because sin has impacted the world. And now we only make it 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years. Because sin has degraded the world. That's what sin does. And what Jesus is telling us, the result of the reign of the devil... There will be nothing but chaos and confusion until the world is destroyed because he's the ruler of this world. That's why Jesus said, the end is not yet in verse 7. There's going to be the destruction of the temple. There's going to be a couple thousand years of the church age, which is known as the end times. And God is revealing you can't trust the world. What does the world have to offer? It has nothing to offer because the world is literally on shaky ground. And we in California know that better than anyone. There will be earthquakes. You trust in the world, you are trusting in shaky ground. You're going to trust in people? You're going to put your faith in people? You're going to put your faith in places? You're going to put your uh, faith in things? He says, listen, there's going to be wars. Nations are going to go against nations. You're going to put your faith in the government? (laughs) That's how I responded. Put your faith in people? Let me tell you about people. 
People of the world will always disappoint you because they have one thing on mind, themselves. They will always disappoint. You're going to put your faith in a place like you got to get to Colorado to find your peace. You got to get out of California to find peace. Let me tell you something. Be careful of putting your faith in a place because Jesus says there's going to be earthquakes and no matter where you go, if you put your faith in a place, something's going to happen to rock your world. It's just the nature of life. Listen, I love to surf. I probably get out once or twice a month. I love getting out in the water. It's like my peace place, okay? I get out there. I'm with a friend or two. I'm looking out at the horizon, singing some worship songs, praying. It's like, kumbaya, my Lord. Like, this is just me and Jesus, and we're just having a rocking time together. And I'm out there in my peace place a few years ago, and up, up pops a dorsal fin of a great white shark a foot away from my friend. I became the Apostle Peter. I don't know if I rode on my surfboard or if I walked straight to the shore. But all I knew in a matter of moments, I was standing on the beach. I didn't go back in the water for three months. I couldn't, I could not. The thing I am terrified of most, a great white shark. Let me tell you something. When you're surfing on the East Coast, you may get bit by a bull shark. But here in California, great whites swallow you whole. Like, you're, one gulp, you're just down and gone. When I saw that fin come up, my place of peace was rocked. Because the only place that you can find peace is in Jesus. Are you going to find your place, your a place of peace in things? Let me tell you, Jesus says there's going to be famine and there's going to be trouble. No matter how many things you buy, you will still be hungry for more. And let me tell you, all the more things you have, they just cause more trouble. Uh, trouble. How much are you paying for your storage unit that you haven't been to in six months? How many fishing poles? How many golf clubs can you have? Now, wives, before you elbow your husbands, you know you got your little special trinkets in your storage place as well that you have not seen for years. When Andre and I moved, I told her if a box has not been opened, it won't be opened and it will be thrown away. We love our things, but we'll be hungry for more. And in the midst of wars, in the midst of earthquakes, in the midst of famine, in the midst of trouble, Jesus says, don't be troubled. Uh, Excuse me? (laughs) You don't want me to be troubled in the middle of a war? You don't want me to be troubled when I'm hungry? Jesus, what are you saying? And let me tell you something, it's about to get worse. He's saying, and maybe you'll write it down, don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the future. Listen, he says in verse 8, these are the beginning of sorrows. The beginning. This is not even the end. And let me tell you the phrase he's using. He goes, this is the beginning of childbirth. That's the phrase he's using. Now, let me tell you something. When Andrea delivered our first child... She went from 10 to 2 in 30 minutes. Now, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. She went from 10 minutes in between contraction to 2 minutes of contractions in 30 minutes. We went on a walk. And all of a sudden, as we're on our walk, she's like this. I looked, I'm like, girl, what happened to you? Like, (laughs) all the moms just left our church, right? Let me tell you, she goes quick. When we were in Montana, she was giving birth to uh, Timon. And it was 2 a.m. in the morning, 
And I know she goes quick, and we're 45 minutes away from the airport. But I was half asleep. And she wakes me up. And I go, it's 2 a.m. I put my hand on her head. I was very comforting. I go, could you sleep for one more hour? (laughs) I was very comforting about it, I promise. Now all the moms really did just leave our church. But let me tell you, when that birth pain starts, and you go from 10 to 2, intensity and severity begins to increase. So Jesus is saying, this is just the beginning. What do you mean, don't worry about my future? You just made me worry more. I mean, it's going to get worse than what it currently is. Let me tell you something. You don't have to worry because of the one who is telling you not to. You can trust him with your future. The very fact that he told us that these things were going to happen expresses the fact that he's in control. Let me remind you of John 16, 33. He says, in me you may have peace. Not in places, not in people, not in things. When you're walking through your trials, you will find peace in me, not your circumstance. So my question is this. Where do you find your peace? Do you find your peace in people, places, or things? And with God in control, what are you worried about? Jesus makes it very practical. Turn with me to Matthew 6. I want you to see this. Go with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 25. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is speaking to worry warts. Now, don't raise your hand how many of you are worry warts. No, don't raise your hand. I want to know. I want to know. That's between you and Jesus. Because what I'm about to read is going to really worry you. Okay? All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Listen to what Jesus said. I'm talking to all my worry warts. Listen up. Therefore, I say to you, listen to who's talking. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the universe. I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you eat, what you drink nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He says, look at the birds of the field. He makes it very practical. Look at the birds of the air. For they don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns. In other words, they don't farm. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He takes care of them. Are you not more value than a bird? Listen to what he says here. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So if you know something's about to happen tomorrow, and today, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm really worried, I'm really worried, I'm really worried. Guess what? Tomorrow will still come. You won't change tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to happen. No matter how much you worry, you won't grow an inch. It actually affects your life. You can shrink by worrying. You can shrink. You can get sick for worrying. So the Bible goes on. Listen, worry warts. I'm still coming, okay? If you thought that was bad, wait till we get to this next paragraph. So why, do you, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't make clothes. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass in the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into an oven, will he not much more clothe you? Here's the problem. Oh, you of little. What's the issue? I worry because I don't trust God with my life. 
So he says, therefore, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all, these things the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. Why don't you trust him? He's going to take care of you. But seek first the kingdom of God. Make faith your priority, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, listen to what he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Now, all my worriers just started worrying more. You mean there's more to worry about tomorrow? I can't believe it. What is Jesus saying? He's saying sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You are not going to grow in your faith by worrying about tomorrow. And what Jesus is trying to get across is make faith your priority. Now you come to me and you go, well, great. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my rent? Paul tells us a powerful truth when we begin to worry about our rent, when we begin to worry about our kids, when we begin to worry about our job, when we begin to worry about things that are going on in our life. Do you know that almost a third of our country is on Prozac? Now, I'm not saying anything against medication, but maybe meditation would work. And what I want us to do is meditate on this next scripture. Take a look at Philippians chapter 4. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing. Listen to what he says. Don't worry about your rent. That's Chet version of this particular scripture. Okay? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you want to live in stress or do you want to live in peace? And let me tell you what living in peace can look like. You see, as we're driving down life's road and we're looking at the dashboard of our life and all of a sudden one of our kids are a prodigal. All of a sudden, we lose our job. All of a sudden, we can't pay tuition. All of a sudden, we can't pay our rent. And all of a sudden, we begin to worry. And then Jesus just said, don't worry about tomorrow. That means there's things to worry about for tomorrow. I'm worried. And all of a sudden, on the dashboard of our life, the red light indicator goes on. You're worried. You're worried. You're worried. As soon as you see that light, get to God in prayer. Paul is saying, Cast your care on the Lord. He cares about you. Can you trust him with your life? Oh, you, me of little faith. Are we willing to trust him and choose not to worry by going to God in prayer? Let me tell you a story. Andre and I were on our way for the first time to Liberia, West Africa. And my pastor promised that he would pay our airfare to go. So I went in the office. Money was due on that Friday. I went in the office and I said, hey, pastor, um, we're ready. Can you pay the bill? Uh, I've decided not to pay. Trust God. You know what came out of my mouth? Trust God. I'm trusting you. You told me that you were going to pay. What, did you not get enough tithes this month and you can't pay? I was so mad. I went home. I can't believe my pastor trusts God. I mean, what in the world is he talking about? Trust God. He was supposed to pay. Trust God. Trust God. I, I, and all the while, I'm in a home. I'm pacing. I'm just like, pray. What do you mean pray? I can't believe this. He said he was going to pay. How are we going to pay this thing? I can't believe it. Pray, she says. What do you mean? Trust in God. I mean, I was trusting in God through you, and you were supposed to provide and trust in God. Andre goes, pray. All right, I'll pray. And Andre and I, we got down on our knees, and I said, Lord... Rebuke our pastor. 
I did for real. Now, this was over 20 years ago, okay? I really did. I was like, you go get him, Jesus. That liar. Oh, you of little faith. And Andrea, Lord, would you just provide for us? We went to our post office box, and there was a check for $1,235 and some cents, the exact amount for both of our airfares to Liberia. That's not someone else's story. That's my story. God provided for a friend of mine who lived in Germany, had no idea of our need, and God had laid us on his heart two weeks prior, put a check in the mail, came to our post office on the day that we were praying. Tell me that God's not in control. What are we worried about? Trust God for your future. Now, here's where we close. Mark chapter 13, verse 9. Would you take a look? Don't worry. Those of you who are thinking I was going to go for an hour and a half, I just might. He says... Watch, verse 9, watch out for yourselves. It's our third warning. It's our third encouragement. He says, be on your guard. He's saying, you're a soldier. This is the Greek. You're a soldier. You're in boot camp. Get on your guard. Get prepared. Get prepared for war. And I want you to see how he tells us to be prepared. Take a look. Once again, Mark 13, 9. For they will... Look carefully. Deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Let me tell you how you can get prepared and be on your guard. Make lemonade out of lemons. I want you to write that down. Make lemonade out of lemons. Did you hear what Jesus said? You will go through trials. You will be arrested. You will have troubles. You will go through problems in life. And some of us are in the middle of our you will. We're in the middle of our own problem. And you've got a choice. Are you going to take that obstacle and make it an opportunity so that you've got a testimony to tell others what Jesus has done for you? Are you going to choose in your moment to go the route of misery and worry, or are you going to choose to turn your obstacle into an opportunity to take those lemons and make lemonade? Paul did. When he was in front of King Agrippa, he turned his trial into a sermon, and he said to Agrippa, I wish you were saved. He turned his lemons into lemonade. He turned his obstacle into an opportunity. Maybe you don't know the name Richard Wurmbrandt. Richard Wurmbrand started the Voice of Martyrs. He was put in jail for his faith for 14 years. And after he was beat, the Lord ministered to him after losing his teeth and said to him, these soldiers would never walk into church, so I've sent you to the soldiers. Turn this obstacle into an opportunity. And he started Voice of the Martyrs. Are we able to take our lemons and make lemonade? Take a look what he says in Mark 13, 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. It must be. So let me tell you what that means. Maybe you write it down. Put your shoes on. Put your shoes on. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. Paul writes the church and he says this, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When you put shoes on, you're going somewhere. 
And Jesus said, go, put your shoes on, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I got great news for you. God brought all the world to L.A., so all you got to do is walk down your street. Put your shoes on and walk down your street. You will run into a Samoan. You'll run into a Filipino. You'll run into someone from Mexico. You'll run into someone from Africa. You'll run into someone from the Bahamas. Trust me, God brought all the world to L.A. All we've got to do is put our shoes on and be obedient to what he's called us to do no matter what we're going through because you will go through trials. And then he says this. Take a look. Mark chapter 13, verse 11. He says this. But when they arrest you, wow, this is getting worse, and deliver you up, in other words, kill you, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he tells you. Follow your guide. Jesus promised to give us the Holy Spirit as our guide. The same way that he promised that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and it was, you can trust when he said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to guide you, that the Holy Spirit will show up when you need him to. And I want you to see when he shows up. When you need him. Right when you are on trial. you got to see that there. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit's going to deliver you from the trial. He's going to show up and help you in the midst of it. He doesn't say you're going to be freed from the trial, the trouble, the tribulation. No, he says the Holy Spirit will give you the power to make it through. You're not alone. So when you get that diagnosis, the Lord says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So as you're sitting in that chair, and you're receiving your chemo, there is someone sitting next to you that you can be a testimony to. And I put you there so that the Holy Spirit can come upon you in power. And though you're walking through your trial, you can shine as a light, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the person sitting next to you. He says, I'm going to give you a guide. He doesn't say, I'm going to deliver you. He says, I'm going to help you. But I want you to see this. It's our final point. Would you take a look? Verse 12. Now, brother will betray brother to death. If this is your first time at Calvary Chapel South Bay, we want you to come back next week, okay? (laughs) We, We really do. It only gets worse from here in Mark chapter 13. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Let me tell you what Jesus is telling us. Best advice comes from finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Because let me tell you something. You're going to be hated. And in the end days, people, the devil is going to do everything he can to stop Christianity. Just go into your public school and tell your friends you're a Christian and see how they'll treat you. 
Go into your workplace. We just had the Gideons go to Orange County, and they were giving out Bibles, and parents were grabbing their children as if they were giving them poison and were running away from the people that were giving out Bibles, telling their children, don't ever read that book. We're living in those days. And he says to him that you're going to be saved. Listen, he says this very carefully in Mark's gospel, chapter 13. He says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Endurance is a gift that's given to those who are saved. You're going to be able to endure and prove that you are saved. Church. Now you're here for the first time. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> Christianity is rough. Did not know I could possibly be signing up for death. I'll tell you something. Actually, life is rough. You don't know if you're going to live or die anytime you get on the 405. <laughs> life is rough. And I'm thankful for Jesus that he's fair enough to tell us Life is hard. And I'm thankful for Jesus that he's willing to say to us and not hide behind curtain number three, the surprises of Christianity. I'm thankful that we have a God that's honest with us and tells us, listen, it's going to be rough, but life is rough. Because let me tell you something about Jesus. He's also great enough to give us the power to make it through this life. And if you're not a believer, you're missing out on something so powerful. So, Father, I come before you in Jesus' name and ask, minister your truth to your church. I pray, Father, that we would recognize things that we're going to go through. We need your spirit. And I'm speaking to the believer right now. And you're walking through your trial. You're walking through your famine. You are walking through your trouble. And you're just about to give up. Endurance is a gift. And all you have to do is ask for the Holy Spirit to give you the power and the strength. You've come to church because you're holding on. And believer, if that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Would you just say, yeah, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I am walking through my famine. I'm walking through my tribulation. I'm walking through my trial. Keep your hand up in a matter of surrender to the Lord. And so, Father, I pray for every hand that's up. I pray in Jesus' name that you would give them the power of the Holy Spirit. This act of surrender, this act of humility, that they are lifting their hand. They're crying out to you and saying, Jesus, help me. You promise. And I'm going to trust you for your promise. Forgive me for worrying. Forgive me for giving up, Lord. And I pray that you would give them endurance. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.